Hello, everybody. Before I kick things off, I want to say how much fun we had at our live show this week at WNYC's Performance Space in Manhattan. And if you couldn't make it, no worries, because we're playing the whole evening right here. Uh, before we do, one last reminder, of course, GTM's New York Rev Future Conference is next week in Brooklyn. We're going to go even deeper on one of the most dynamic electricity market transformations in America. And you, Energy Gang listeners, get 15% off. So just go to greentechmedia.com slash events and use the promo code ENERGYGANG, all one word, ENERGYGANG, on checkout to get your 15% discount. And finally, a big thanks to Mission Solar Energy, a USPV manufacturer based in San Antonio, Texas. Mission Solar's modules are designed, engineered, and assembled in their Texas-based 200-megawatt facility, and they serve residential, commercial, government, and utility applications. Adhering to the strictest quality standards, Mission Solar's modules outperform their competition in real-world conditions, proving to be an easy choice for installers, distributors, and developers. To find out more about Mission's high-powered, American-quality modules, visit missionsolar.com. And now, on to the show. Okay, so the time has come for these paragons of energy geekery. Jigger, Catherine, Stephen Lacey, come on out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Stephen Lacey has been kind enough to put us on his show. He's the Inquisitor par excellence. It's a little scary to have to answer his questions. And tonight, their esteemed guest, their special guest, coming to you live from New York City is Mark Chambers. Mark is the director of the office, the mayor's office of sustainability, and I'm going to turn this over to you. Welcome to Clean Energy Connections. Take care. What's up, New York? I presume we have some fans of the Energy Gang in the house. It is. Uh, it happens to be New York Climate Week. President Trump is in town. I think he's bouncing around the city, checking out events on deforestation and emissions trading policies. He, we have some tickets for him at the box office, but uh, I think there was a, a conflicting event at the Russian embassy tonight. Um, we'll see if he comes. I know you're thinking, no, no, he's really into uh, permafrost melting. It's not, it's not what you think. All right, well, for those of you in the studio, welcome. This is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media, our weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey, your MC and the editor-in-chief at Green Tech Media. For those of you back home, we're here in New York Public Radio's green space in Lower Manhattan, and we've got a sold-out crowd here in front of us. We're really appreciative. We're really appreciative of all you coming here. And in case they didn't hear you the first time, Let's send a little love back to the folks watching at watch parties, listening to this through their headphones, and maybe even to Donald Trump since he's in town. (laughs) 
Uh, well, we've got a packed show for you. We've got a bunch of different segments. It's going to be a great time. Before I introduce my guests, a very quick word. Um, of course, we heard a little bit about the background of this series, and we just want to extend a thanks to uh, Urban Future Lab, Acre, Solar One, NYSERDA as part of this Clean Energy Connection series. We have so much fun recording at this venue. Uh, also, a big thanks to the engineers here who make this sound really fantastic. Uh, what, a, what a superb space this is. And thanks to all of you for being here and taking the time to listen to our show and spending your evening with us. We really, you know, we're just so appreciative of that. So let me bring in the rest of the gang. Uh, Catherine Hamilton is a partner with 38 North Solutions. She is our congressional encyclopedia, our grid modernization maven, and our occasional diplomat who prevents me and Jigger from perhaps devolving into name calling. Hey, Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> the biggest job for which I am not paid. <laughs> Jigger Shaw is the president of Generate Capital. He's our financial wizard, our business, model our business model innovation evangelist, and often plays the role of hard ass in our regular good cop, bad cop routine. Uh, how's it going? Doing well, straight man. <laughs> well, let's introduce our special guest, Mark Chambers, uh, who's the director of the New York office of sustainability here in New York City. He's an urbanist and an architect who previously served in DC as the Director of Energy and Sustainability. Mark, welcome, we're thrilled to have you here. I gotta ask you, I should know this, what is an urbanist? Fair question, I'm thrilled to be here also. <laughs> I think an urbanist is, and also, thank you all for having me. I think an urbanist is someone who loves cities and understands that we are at our best when we are in dense environments where we can't escape one another and that where we learn from each other and are able to uh, practice a certain amount of empathy with how we exist. I think we're better for it. Great. We'll see how much empathy we can draw out in this debate and Let's discussion <laughs> tonight. Uh, and, and your sock game is very strong there. Sock game is always strong. Yeah. I consistently have a strong sock game. Jigger, what about, what about you? What do you, what do you got I'm for all right. I'm socks? all right. Stripe? We're going with stripes? That's right. I've got, I've got Jackie O socks on. Ah, nice. We, nice. We, we have a game at Green Tech Media. People on Twitter started pointing out who has the best socks. And so now internally in the office when we sit up and do panel discussions. We're all battling for the best socks. I'm a flip-flop kind of person, so yeah. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we're uh, we're going to learn much more about Mark than his socks tonight, and that brings me to the run of show. First, we're going to test the gang's knowledge of New York's energy scene with a little segment we're calling Climate Week, The Game. Then we're going to get to know Mark Chambers more deeply and figure out what the director of the New York Sustainability Office actually does, some of the issues that he's dealing with. Then we'll go deep. We'll have a discussion and debate about the importance of local climate and energy policy in the Trump era, and we'll pass the mic around to all of you to take some Q&A during that bigger discussion. We'll probably have time for three, four, five questions, so please keep your questions short, but we'd really like to get some interactivity, and we'll put some, some mics up when that conversation starts. Finally, we'll have a quick news circuit. We're going to tell you which headlines are worth paying attention to. And of course, as every week, a bunch happened this week, and we're going to talk about it. And of course, at the end of the show, 
we're going to tell you something you may not know. So let's get started and find out who up here has the most trivial knowledge of New York's energy and climate scene. Uh, we're going to use each of these questions as a jumping off point to talk about the top issues of the day. In this first question, I am going to give you a quote from a New York energy luminary, and you're going to have to guess who said it. Here's the quote. When I talk about building out a network, building out the grid of the future, it's hard for me to see how it can be centrally planned. When you think about other networks that have been created around us, where technology has changed dramatically, it's been done because the providers have been able to be responsive to markets. Who said that? Mark Chambers, you're up. Yeah, that's, this is going to be short-lived. I do not know. Um, <laughs> hmm. I promised myself that with any question I did not know, I would uh, answer Lindsay Hirsch. So I'm going <laughs> to go with that. Fair enough. Uh, anybody in the electricity space come to mind, people thinking big about, about the, the future of the electricity system? It's, it's a tough call. I mean, I, I think that... <clears throat> Audrey. <laughs> All right, Jigger jumped in. That. And uh, your, your answer is Audrey? You think it's Audrey? I think so. I think she's very eloquent. Okay. Catherine, yeah, what do you think? My, my guess was Audrey. You're all wrong. <laughs> Richard Kaufman? Was it Kaufman? Richard Kaufman. <laughs> he was yeah. my number two. Yeah. I think Audrey wrote it for him. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, so this was Richard Kaufman recently talking to one of our reporters about how to develop energy storage in the state. And New York's going through this really interesting conversation about mandates versus market reforms. And how much do you want to develop top-down mandates? In storage, of course, there is this mandate passed back in June through the legislature, and there is still a question of whether it is going to get passed by the governor's office. Um, and, and I just want to use this as a point of discussion about what New York is trying to do here, Jigger, and, and maybe I'll pass it over to you first because I think you have pretty strong views on um, you know, using m more creative market constructs versus top-down mandates. Do you have any thoughts about maybe the best way that New York can start thinking about storage? I mean, should they go ahead with a storage mandate, or should, is this a, the appropriate way of thinking about what to do with energy storage when other states are, are doing these top-down mandates? Well, I'm certainly a big fan. I, I, look, I think that New York City has a unique problem which is that they have, you know, the most talented fire department in the world, and that fire department has not approved lithium-ion batteries for deployment in this city. Um, I think there's a, there's a, a pilot that the, the DCAS has, has established uh, three years of the making for a one-year pilot, which I think is using vanadium redux batteries. Again, I don't think it's been approved by FDNY. And... I think Vision actually has another battery. So one of my challenges is that I'm happy to go global with this stuff, but ultimately, like, the local stuff actually matters, right? Because, you know, we do have to get some of these basic things passed. But I, I definitely think that right now there are engineers in the city of New York who are designing microgrids using cogeneration, small amounts of renewable energy like solar, and batteries. And they are deploying those solutions throughout New York State at you know less than 10 cents a kilowatt hour delivered, which is cheaper than Con Ed, and it's certainly cheaper than a lot of the electricity sold in this country. And so I do think that it's possible for all of these 
thousand points of light to sort of disrupt the the renewable energy or the utility industry. I just don't know how you do it without the batteries getting approved by FDNY. And on top of that, I mean, New York City, the city itself passed, I think, the first municipal storage target, right? 100 megawatt hours of storage. So this is this is moving forward regardless. Yeah, I don't think we have to choose. I think we can do both. You can have a competitive platform to but to really create an industry here for energy storage. I think you need the mandate. I think you do it. You know, it's not there forever. They'll far exceed it. And that'll jumpstart the industry here, create certainty, bring a lot of business here. I think, it, I think we need to do both. Yeah. Mark, does that storage integration come under your purview? To a certain extent, yes. I mean, I think that, it, to follow up on what everyone has said, I, I do agree that there's no future without storage. Like, it has to be something in which we are figuring out a way to integrate that and use power when we need to use it. I, and I think that working with FDNY to be able to do that safely is something that we're completely committed to. It's, it is... Not easy. I mean, I think that the, the notion that we can uh, push through technology quickly is, uh, is a misnomer when it comes to protecting kind of the safety and, and well-being of, of all of the city. That being said, certain things can move faster. And, and I think that to the credit of uh, the mayor, he's putting people in positions that uh, have a little bit of experience in being able to connect with both the private sector and what their needs are, as well as understanding how the public sector really works and what it's necessary to turn kind of a large ship. So, I mean, I think that the road for batteries are, is eminent. I mean, I think we're, you know, we're definitely not far out from seeing a cascade of being able to, particularly with lithium ion, being able to see um, how that can be done safely in the city. New York is a different city than anywhere else, though, so there is a certain amount of, uh, of reasonable apprehension around the, the density concerns that, that I think uh, FDNY has. But, you know, we're working with them, and we're working with everyone, and I think we're going to get there. Yeah. I mean, it's the challenge of being an urbanist. Indeed. <laughs> you love it, you know? And sometimes you have to let it go, and then, you know, bring it back in. <laughs> okay, let's move on to the second one. So, uh, when New York City first released its energy benchmarking data in 2012, we saw some very interesting results. Which one of these buildings, according to that initial release, was the most energy efficient? Was it the Chrysler Building, which was built in the 1930s, the LEED certified Seven Trade World Trade Center, or Trump Tower? <laughs> Catherine, what do you think? Uh, the you want me to go through them again? I'm guessing the World Trade Center. Okay. Jigger. Um, I thought it was the Empire State Building. How do we, like, miss one of these things here? <laughs> or what about the Bank of America the Building? It's one Times Square. Uh, Isn't there, like, I, I didn't put it on the thing? list for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like it. I don't like it. Well, I'll just pick the Chrysler Building just to make sure that okay. it's covered. I'm going Chrysler also. Yes. Yeah. It turns out that having few windows, very thick walls, uh, very little ventilation makes you very energy efficient. <laughs> so the Asylum. Chrysler building won, and it beat out the Empire State building. Asylum-like Now, qualities. those were 2012 yes. numbers. I haven't seen the updated figures, and that could have changed. But it, many of the older buildings in New York City were the most energy efficient, and a bunch of LEED-certified buildings happened to not be. Um, so that's actually, I mean, I, I brought that up because that's sort of a tricky thing to be thinking about when you're looking at this wide scope of buildings uh, that you now have a mandate for. 
to, to, to encourage energy efficiency retrofits. And you have to think about uh, how the varying stock of building buildings actually performs and it's not as straightforward as it seems no it's not especially you know when you love buildings and you want them to kind of be beautiful and to actually provide uh, the the services that uh, they encapsulate i'm an architect and so uh, i definitely um, kind of really respect three-dimensional decision making and how that goes into actually creating a space that uh, makes you want to be there so I don't think those things are mutually exclusive. We can have beautiful buildings that perform incredibly well. You know, part of that is you know, turning things off when you're not using them. Uh, the other part is, is actually investing in kind of a long-term strategy of building materials and uh, knowledgeable um, kind of building operators to be able to really extract all those benefits out of the, you know, the investments you've made. Yeah, I saw that episode of how I met your mother when they protect that building. (laughs) But, um, you know, I I mean, I I do think that this is why the mayor's announcement was so good, right? Because I don't love... Step back. Tell us what the mayor's announcement was. So the mayor's announcement, well... I might get this wrong, but was I'd to, like to hear your interpretation. Was to <laughs> That's what we do here. Yeah. We interpret facts. Right. We, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of buildings that still use number two and number six, you know, heating oil um, to heat the heat their buildings. And you know, I think EDF played a big role in trying to get a lot of those buildings transformed, but it just hasn't happened. And I think the mayor finally said there needed to be a mandate to really help these folks save themselves from the burden of the expense of that fuel. I mean, it's actually cheaper to use other fuels. But on top of that, um, the actual health impacts of that fuel. Um, and, you know, and I think that that mandate is important because I think in general we constantly just say this, we need to do this energy efficiency stuff. But I think pinpointing a specific technology and really isolating it and saying this is you know, really a problem in our city and we really need to get rid of it is more effective. And I think the mayor showed real leadership in doing that. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay with that interpretation. That was great, good. Great, great. <laughs> uh, any other specifics of the policy that you want to mention? Because it's a pretty big deal. No, and it's, it's a, the yeah. first of a kind. In this, it's the first of its kind in, in the country, right? Absolutely. I mean, and I think that uh, variations um, probably say that one of the first in, in the world in terms of how we're targeting this. Uh, the the essence of it is saying that we are identifying, just as Jigger said, that. buildings represent the lion's share of greenhouse gas emissions in in our city. You know, 67% of the emissions come from from buildings. And in particular, uh, these large buildings, buildings over 25,000 square feet, uh, do have an impact uh, that we can have an effect on. You know, and it's not that every building is bad. You know, we basically took a look at the the full swath of buildings. A lot of that comes from benchmarking data. uh, And we said, okay, Basically, the median performance of some of these buildings, we can kind of isolate, and let's figure out a way to get the bottom half of performing buildings to perform the same as the top half. Like, that's a reasonable, and it's an aggressive achievement for, for what we can expect, and can also meet the, uh, the industry where it is. And, and in order to do that, we targeted fossil fuels that are uh, having the largest contribution to those emissions. So that resulted in about you know, 14,500 you know, or so buildings. That really comprise about a quarter of, of the emissions. So the mandate uh, is really going to set um, fossil, fuse, fossil fuel use energy um, intensity targets for those buildings. Uh, it's going to say that here's the cap of what uh, we can expect per square foot per year. And uh, in 2030, we're going to start enforcing that. You have some time to be able to, whether it's uh, retrofitting, whether it is adjusting operational 
uh, considerations. Uh, there's time to get there. We'll dedicate resources towards making sure you have uh, uh, the technical expertise, connecting you to financing, connecting you pace, to right? pace financing. We're introducing that as well with the with the council to be able to have low in, um, interest loans that you pay back through your property taxes, uh, which is something that allows for banks to underwrite in a way that they wouldn't before. So I think providing the environment that makes it attractive to take out uh, these loans and make these retrofits, and also being aggressive because we don't have a lot of time. So we actually can't wait any longer for the voluntary action that um, we were kind of hoping for. We have to say, we need to act. We hope that you go far beyond these caps, but we really need to see measurable reduction in the impact of our buildings. And you think you'll create 17,000 green jobs in Absolutely. the process. Yeah. This feels particularly important, not just because of the economic impact, um, but because and because it's the first of its kind. But 2011, 2012, it was such a difficult process just to create these energy benchmarking laws, and now you're seeing the policies develop on top of those data uh, requirements, and we're starting to see the you know the fruits of that labor bear out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I you mentioned before that I used to uh, work. Um, for DC government, and uh, one of the kind of benchmark, uh, I don't know if it's, now it's platitude, maybe it's just a, a quote that I had there, was um, more data, less carbon, zero excuses. And I think that part of that means that when you start this cascade of information coming out of buildings, whether it's from benchmarking or uh, kind of other uh, data, you create more options for more aggressive policies down the road. On to our third and final question. This is for all you acronym freaks out there who love to abbreviate everything. We know who you are. REV, of course, is the most acronym-heavy regulatory process in history. And uh, I want to see if you all can identify the real REV acronym from this list. I'm going to give you three. So here we are. There's this new one called Swagger, a utility vendor data sharing protocol. There's Vader, the new tariff for valuing distributed resources. And of course, this great calculation of grid value, B plus SS plus IC plus AC plus P plus O plus SSB equals the value of B. <laughs> Wait, what, you're asking which one is right or which one Which wrong? one is real? <laughs> well, that's uh, obvious. B-D-E-R. Darth Vader. Vader, <laughs> Vader. Vader. Yeah, I heard the folks at uh, Advanced Energy Economy call it Vader, and I've since called it Vader. I don't know if anyone calls it anything different. Well, now everyone thinks it's Vader after the crappy rule that came out last week. Yeah, well, tell us about that. That's why I brought it up. So what's, what's going on with this new value tariff? Well, I mean, you know, like, I don't know how to, how to even approach it. I think that <laughs> when, you, when you read the rule, um, you know, this is the value of distributed energy resources. And in, you know, for a little context, the first version of community solar was allowed to basically get full retail reimbursement for, you know, for building that solar plant. You sold it to a retail customer, you got that revenue. Um, for subsequent rounds, you actually have to limit yourself to the value of DER for your reimbursement rate um, in the future, right? So if you spent all this money and all this time developing community solar projects, and then you get a crappy value of DER reimbursement rate, then all of that development capital goes down the tubes and, you know, you lose out on billions of dollars of economic development and jobs and whatnot that are in these rural economies. Um, and I think that, you know, like, like a lot of things in the REV, you know, um, 
process here, um, you know, the utility fingerprints were all over this one. And it just, it just irks me to no end that, you know, New York has this weird thing where the governor has gets so many kudos for all the work that they've done in solar that, you know, we just can't hold the governor accountable to the stupid stuff that comes out. Um, and, you know, and so then we end up with this weird place where everyone thinks that New York's doing all this great stuff and we've got less than like 25 megawatts of community solar projects actually getting built in the state, right? It's just, it's, it's embarrassing. I've been using this phrase a lot lately. Um, I think Rev is an example of uh, it being a Rorschach test in that you can see it as a slow-moving process that's going to take a while to materialize and, you know, see it in a positive light. Or you can use it as an example of why utilities really are not capable of being innovative um, and getting outside their very specific sets of interests for this greater good of market reform, as you seem to allude to, Jigger. Um, Catherine, any thoughts on the different interpretations of how REV is going in light of this pretty controversial evolution of um, this particular rate? I mean, how do, you see, how do you see people framing the way REV has gone forward so far? Yeah, I think there is a combination of people thinking it's going too fast and people thinking it's going too slow. It depends on where you are. In, and that in breakdown the is where? Yeah. And that breakdown is where, it's generally? Like utilities versus like third parties are actually right, trying right. to coming to the platform. Think it's going too fast. Where's the platform? Pretty much everyone else thinks it's going too fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, where's my platform? I want to plug in. Well, I mean, you actually wrote great testimony with Wellinghoff and others about how this yeah. might be done better. And, you know, yeah. the commission ignored your, your they, input. They were not there yet. Um, and I also think about it in the context of what the ISO is doing on the DER roadmap. Like, how does this kind of inter intersect, and and how is it then going to play into the wholesale market? And how do we think about it? So it's it's complicated. I we know that it's complicated. I feel like we could learn a little bit from Cal ISO and what's going on in California and what they're able to monetize to look at what New York can do. But um, I think generally, though, people see New York as a leader. It's just that the de the devil is in the details. Well, and I mean, I hate to say this, but Scott Weiner should know better. I mean, we've been working with him for years in New Jersey, and now he's over at the Public Service Commission, and this is not good. Well, we've heard how you feel about New Jersey and past events here. It's true. Oh, it. It's true. <laughs> Although I have to say, the new deal that they struck the other day on saving the New Jersey solar program is pretty damn good. So. New Jersey has life in it yet. <laughs> hey, we're going to take a quick break here and talk about Mission Solar Energy, our sponsor. We've got a lot more content ahead. But first, we want to talk about uh, Mission's modules. You know, third-party testing has shown that Mission Solar modules have the highest PTC ratings of any American manufactured product. That means that their modules maintain higher power output in real-world conditions when compared to other American modules. Mission Solar's modules are subjected to multiple quality checks throughout the manufacturing process and endure stringent quality and reliability testing. Each product exceeds industry requirements and is backed by an independent 25-year linear warranty. To learn more about Mission Solar's high-quality modules and to see them get run over and shot by a tank and hit with a flamethrower, visit missionsolar.com. And uh, now on to the rest of the live show. All right, well, I'm feeling a little loosened up here, so I want to spend 
<laughs> some yeah, time getting to know Mark Chambers here. Um, we're going to figure out how his experience influences New York policy. And then we're going to talk about where it fits into this broader national picture, which will be the theme of our much larger debate where um, you'll get to answer or get to ask some, some questions. I want to get down to the basics. What does the director of the mayor's office of sustainability job actually encompass? It's a big job. It is a big job. It is uh, a. I would say it's it's a it's a fast-paced job that I uh, am really excited and it's uh, it's a pleasure to be able to do it. The best way to think about it is there are probably three, you know prongs of, of what I'm responsible for. Three, so it's like a triceratops of activity that I'm responsible for. Um, the, uh, my son is big into dinosaurs, so it'd be awesome. Um, the, uh, I think first, it, I kind of alluded to earlier, is that uh, there's a policy perspective. There's also uh, a certain amount of implementation uh, that um, is required, and then uh, advocacy. And so I would say on the policy side, you know, I'm responsible for crafting and uh, guiding the city on its path to carbon mitigation, reducing greenhouse gas emissions 80% by 2050. That's the charge that is... That's like the Velociraptor that goal. Is, you yes. slash carbon emissions. Yes, with like small, like quarter-sized limbs. Um, and, and I have that responsibility to, you know, and that kind of plays itself out through waste. It plays itself out through transportation, through uh, buildings we talked about before, through, through energy. Um, and all of those components have, you know, 100 sub-components that, that we work towards. But it's a policy perspective, and it's really guiding uh, and painting a vision for where the city needs to go and how do we, uh, as a city, together craft a, a, a route towards carbon neutrality on that kind of, you know, 30-plus-year time horizon. Uh, the second part in terms of implementation goes to the uh, the conversation we had before about FDNY and, and everyone else. You know, there are 70 agencies that uh, you all interact with every single day. I'm sure on the way from the you know subway here, 13 city agencies you somehow interacted with. Um, there are, you know, you know, hundreds of thousands of people that work for the city that provide services and safety and, and uh, resources. My role is to fully kind of integrate the work of sustainability into uh, their work and as a result to connect with you and meet you where you are. Um, so it's, it means that I need to get deep into battery storage. It means I need to get you know, deep into electric vehicles. It means I need to um, figure out also what obstacles are preventing people from being able to, to add this work into their mission vision. Uh, but bottom line, I have to figure out a way to make sure that we are bending everyone's skill sets and passions towards um, incorporating uh, climate work because ev that's the only way this works is if everyone is somehow working on it. Um, not just from the city perspective, but all of you as well. <laughs> um, the, I think the third part I would say is about advocacy, which is more about the fact that New York City is New York City. You know, we have an obligation not just to the eight and a half million uh, residents here, but also to think about what can we do to de-risk the work we are doing for other municipalities, for other cities and states, both nationally and globally. So, um, you know, we, we push to, and to have this building mandate. It's not just so that we can, you know, reduce emissions by 7% between now and, and 2030. It's so that, you know, New York 
can say to all of its other um, brother and sister cities, here, we did this. What do you need help with? If, if this works for you, copy-paste, and, and let's keep moving. Because we know that uh, the impacts of, uh, of climate change do not respect boundaries or borders or, um, or you know, city and state lines. And so uh, we have to actually figure out a way to speed up the process by which other people can do that. And a lot of that means we can take risks that other cities can't or are not willing to do because of their uh, kind of uh, political leadership right now. So let's make it easier for them because everyone has to figure this out sooner as opposed to later. So that's kind of the bucket of, I think, of, of things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, in my own experience, I have to say, like, there are a few places that can really invest in the best and the brightest policy people like within the movement. New York is one of them and Mark is, you know, representation of that. I think California is another place where they can really afford to have the smart people to implement A B thirty two. And um and we're all in their debt because frankly, like this stuff's not easy as Catherine can attest to and um getting the policy right requires really, really smart people. Just remind me the timeline of how you, when did you move from D.C. to New York? So I moved at the end of last summer. The actually, um, it's coming, it's kind of a, coming up on, on a year. When I actually got the, the full on offer for, uh, to say, hey, we want you to, you know, join, um, and the mayor's excited to kind of, wanted to bring me on. I was actually, uh, I was at Comic-Con, um, and so I was like, uh, I was... As know, any sustainability manager as, show, as should As one be. should, and so I was here dressed um, um, as an impromptu Luke Cage, um, and, I, and I got the call, and I was like, this is great, um, because we kind of, you know, committed to, you know, my family, I have uh, a, a son and a, and a daughter, and my wife and I, we, we decided we wanted to kind of move here, and we were... We're going to, um, you know, kind of give all that we can to New York City. And so uh, it was great. And I think it was kind of appropriate that uh, I was kind of uh, in full cosplay at the time when, um, when I got the, uh, the message. Because I think this is a time when it is require a certain amount of superheroes to be able to, to dive fully into this. And was that part of the interview process? Like, so is the cosplay scene here pretty good? Yeah. Are you... Yeah. Uh, strong... <laughs> It definitely came up. I mean, it's, it's, it's important, you know, like whether or not you're, you're full, fully into uh, all of that New York has to offer, you know. Okay, so, so you, you got the job here, you moved to New York, and November rolls around, and we have a president who is basically committed, verbally committed to rolling back everything that we've tried to accomplish over the last eight years. What were you thinking? What kind of internal conversations were you having within uh, your team, and how did that change your mission, if at all? So, I mean, my transition up here, it was, it was kind of right in, that, in the middle of time. Like, I, I was just leaving uh, D.C. and coming up here right around the time of the election. So it was fresh for me, but to be honest, I, I didn't have an outlet yet for that. You know, I had, I had built a team in, in D.C. that was doing um, a lot of great work, um, and then now getting ready to start with a new team here that also has an incredible volume of work. And in the middle of this, we have this, um, this craziness that's, that's, that's happening uh, in Washington. And as it started to unfold, you start to realize, oh, this actually can get worse. And then, and then a little bit later, it's like, oh, this is going to get more and more worse. So uh, for me, it was all about how do we uh, 
kind of not focus on you know which civil liberty am I losing today, and and focus a little bit more on how do we build the structure of the team to be able to uh, to fight aggressively. So what I've spent the time doing over the last um, nine months really is to kind of reorg and restructure our team and to focus ourselves on. How can we take the most aggressive big posture to be able to not only push back in the absence and abdication of, of federal leadership, but also you know, create a lane for ourselves where we can say, okay, we might have toyed around this idea before. We know that we've, we've done the, the kind of analytics that support that we have to go big in order to really uh, start to bend this curve uh, and, and start to, I mean, the, the whole game here is about is no longer just about crafting a, a course to, to 80% by, by 2050. The, the game here is front-loading the work so that we can really bend that curve and have less emissions happen in total. It's, it's, the, it's a volume game, not a destination, destination now. And so we need to have the structure in place to do that, and we need a team to do that. And so that's what we've been focusing on, building the team, building the structure, getting this mandate out the door so that we can uh, have an aggressive policy stance to be able to build from. Now that this is out and now that we are uh, setting the stage for everything that comes after this, it's, it's only hard choices now. So it's no longer a, a game of maybe you want to do this, maybe we want to do that. No, everything is hard and everything has to be done uh, now. So there's a certain urgency that... I like to kind of, if I had a, a, an office, but I, I don't, so because I, I do believe in open plans, and there's part of the architect in me that thinks that... There's a bench at the park yeah. that you can meet Mark. Right. <laughs> if I had one, I would kick the door down every morning, um, uh, just to kind of make sure that we are all um, recognizing that we have this window in time to really um, be as forceful with our strategy as possible, uh, because everyone, yourselves included, are kind of counting on us to set that vision. I mean, I just want to push back a little bit and you and I have had this conversation before but I, I you know Mayor Nichols had a pledge that he had everyone sign I think it was almost a thousand mayors that ended up signing it you know sort of around 2008 maybe and they didn't even benchmark their their emissions most of the cities right I mean they didn't do anything yep. right and I just you know I wonder sometimes whether like you know this sort of federal leadership thing you know in some ways you know Bush got us out of Kyoto it was one of his first moves. Yep. And, you know, Trump getting us out of Paris, like, in some ways, it maybe kicked a lot of these mayors in the ass and got them to actually do something because they certainly weren't doing anything on Mayor Nichols's pledge. No, I think it's fair. I mean, I think, I think that uh, a lot of this, this kind of movement that we've seen around cities has galvanized um, a lot of uh, less progressive mayors and less progressive municipalities to do more. Um, some of them don't know what more looks like, and I think there's a part of this uh, where we have to actually uh, kind of lead and show what, what that is. But also another part of it is, is making sure that uh, it's not just a desire to do it, it's actually having the political structure to be able to do it. So if the, if the principal of a, of a city, um, and the, the executive, wants to actually get this and extract this data out of, out of buildings, you know, that has to happen in partnership with, with their council who are all a reflection of what the, the population you know, wants and demands. You know, so I think that um, part of the, the, the issue is having, again, rigor to, around what we're asking for, but part of it is, is making sure that everyone is, is truly demanding that and, and making themselves as vocal as possible. The, what we're going to see, I think, as a benefit and the outcome of 
all of these climate pledges and mayors kind of doubling down on this is that you're going to have a more engaged population that are not just demanding stuff, something of their representatives, but demanding more of all of the gatekeepers for the information. So, I mean, as much information as, as I am able to access, you know, it belongs to, to, uh, to the city. So, like, we try to be as transparent as possible. But, you know, there's always a conversation about, you know, getting more data from utilities. That's a conversation that also needs to happen. And, and I think that we need to make sure that um, everyone that's as engaged is knocking on every door possible to make sure that um, uh, we're kind of liberating that data. And Mark, how do you bring everybody along? So, you know, you have some pretty cool projects, blockchain in Brooklyn, these microgrids and things, but how do you also reach other parts of the city or other parts of the community that might not naturally be as engaged or may really need more social justice aspects for what you're doing? No, absolutely. I mean, I don't think that, again, they're not mutually exclusive by any stretch of imagination. That's really the cornerstone, cornerstone of uh, of this administration. And this is why I really wanted to come and, and, and work for Mayor de Blasio, is that he has restructured our, uh, our metrics for success to um, give a priority and a, uh, a kind of a, a mandate around uh, uh, inclusion and, and equity. So like we're trying to create, a, you know, not just a, a resilient and sustainable city, but a just city. And so uh, one of the metrics, not just for my office, but also for every of those 70 agencies and everyone that works for the city, is that you have to uh, make sure that um, equitable distribution of your, um, of your work is a priority. And it also, not just equitable distribution, but a prioritization to, uh, to communities that have been uh, kind of structurally and um, historically um, under, you know, invested in. So I, I think that we have an opportunity now, especially around the narrative that exists with, um, with resiliency and, and response and adaptation to recognize that it's for the most part, like, every, like a lot of other kind of societal problems, the most vulnerable populations are the ones that are on the front lines of having to respond to that. You know, we see that not just in New York, but also in a lot of the other cities that are now dealing with, you know, aggressive um, weather um, that, like, we have a responsibility to kind of protect, uh, you know, the city in, in all parts of it. Great. So we're going to move on to contextualize that uh, in a national framework. But first, I just have a few more questions here to get deeper into all of your souls. Uh, <laughs> if you've ever read French literature, maybe you've heard of Marcel Proust, um, or maybe you've just flipped to the back of a Vanity Fair magazine and read the Proust questionnaire. And uh, there are very simple questions that I think get us to um, help understand a person, you know, a prominent figure and, and what they're thinking, what their frame of mind is. And I want to walk through each of these and just go very quickly into um, uh, a, a few questions for Mark Jigger and Catherine. So, Mark, to you, what is your idea of perfect happiness? <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So, uh, Every year for the last couple of years, uh, my brother Earl and I, we, um, we hike a section of the Appalachian Trail. Um, and so we take like about four days or so and uh, the two of us go out. Uh, we typically hike about 60 miles and so it's a lot, a lot, of, a lot of work. Uh, what's great about it, in addition to it just being an amazing time and kind of the rhythm of, of moving through the um, kind of this, this strange uh, space that happens uh, along the trail is that we get dropped off typically by my parents and so there's this, 
You know, it's like how much unsolicited advice can you cram into a car ride? Um, and then we get dropped off, and then we kind of go on this on this 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 trek, um, and we have a great time. And then on the on the end of it, it's typically like you know, my wife Nithya and my sister-in-law Mary and and, and all the the, the kids. Uh, I have two kids, and my brother has two. Um, they're usually there to pick us up, and we're all dirty and like smell like we've been walking through the woods for four days. Um, but it's a that collective experience is full-on happiness. All right, I like that. <laughs> Jigger, what's your greatest fear? <laughs> I'm going to get found out. <laughs> no. Um, look, I, you know, I, um, I don't, you know, I don't have as many fears as most folks. And I have to say the reason for that is because I was born in a small town without running water or electricity in India. And came over here when I was, you know, like a couple years old. And so, you know, I think that the thing that I get most afraid of, actually, is that I really do think that this social justice stuff is, is real. And I, and I think that a lot, for a lot of us, we actually are so disconnected from it that we don't actually even understand why they feel the way they feel. Like, I was talking to the guys at Singularity University, you know, those guys in the West Coast who think that everything's coming to one like AI thing or whatever and and is that like Ray Kurtzwill's group or yeah that, that and Peter Thiel and yeah, all yeah, those right. crazy guys you know, if, you're so, hearing, if you're hearing this you're the resistance I think yeah. that's better right, yeah. and they all think they're going to live to 150 years old by taking nutraceuticals and whatever it is right and and my big thing with them is I was like like do you not understand history like, do you not understand that, like, at some point, your selfishness will get you to the point where someone's just going to, like, take a direct flight, find Bangalore SFO, pitch you an idea, and shoot you. Right? That's how this goes, right? That's how social justice Wait, happens. What? No, but I mean, like, at some point, like... I need to rewind that one. <laughs> no, but at some point, when you say that I want to use, like, 5,000 times the average human being's energy to be able to live to 150 years old because I'm that freaking important or everything else. Like, I think that's where we are. And I am really afraid of, like, the fact that everyone sort of looks at social justice and environmental justice as this sort of, like, thing that, you know, kind of have to deal with. It's sort of like giving to the United Way. And it's not. Like, it's, it's, there are people who are so desperate and been so, like, sort of left behind by all of us that like at some point like it just manifests in like our selfishness right like and 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 I'm most afraid of that because I I'm a deep reader of history and I just I, like this happens over and over again and it's just like we never learn it's like the next society comes forward and we're like oh like this is not going to happen to us cuz we're so awesome and it does happen like and so yeah, I'm very afraid of that social upheaval well I've always thought that you've been wearing a bubble vest, but now I know that it's a bulletproof vest Kevlar. for when people Kevlar. pitch you. Kevlar. Kevlar. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Catherine, what's the quality you like most in humanity? Um, empathy, and I will have another one, which is lack of prejudice. Hmm. Good answer. <laughs> well, I, I mean, you know, everybody's different and everybody's special and everybody's got something, right? Yeah. And, um... And people don't always recognize that in everybody else. Mark, you get the last question. What's your current state of mind? I am hopeful. I think that we are not going to miss this opportunity 
um, to kind of galvanize. Um, I guess it's simultaneously my worst fear that we won't also <laughs> do that, but I am hopeful <laughs> that we will. Um, and I, I think that we we're in a place now of, of how connected we could be um, that if we are able to kind of utilize the resources we have, we can actually meet this particular challenge. So I'm hopeful. Well, I guess now's the time that we can figure out if we shatter that hope or raise it up. So let's talk a little bit about the national framework now. And um, we're going to sort of set this conversation up. We're going to debate a little bit about these issues. Um, And we've got some mics up here. And in about 10 minutes or so, 15 minutes or so, we're going to have people who can come to the mics, ask us anything you want. Uh, We're probably going to get to about three or four questions, so I apologize in advance if we don't get to that many of them. But we would love to hear what's on your mind. And at many events, we haven't taken questions, and I know a lot of people do want to throw things out there. Just Just a reminder to keep, please keep them short. Um, So we've been in a New York state of mind so far this show, but it's time to stretch beyond the Empire State and go deep into the Empire itself, which is striking back against climate. Yes, of course, I'm referring to the Trump administration and its mission to destroy climate policy and hunt out any rebels pushing the cause. But the Trump administration isn't as powerful as it thinks. So far, 125 cities, nine states, 902 corporations, and 183 colleges and universities have stood up and pledged to meet the Paris climate targets, many of them going beyond. This makes cities like New York City, of course, uh, some of the most powerful forces in climate policy today. But how powerful? Is there an extent? How far can they go, really? Uh, And that's what we're going to mull over right now. We're going to talk about America's state of play in energy and politics, look at both the local and national level, and then, of course, we want to hear from you. So um, I think it's helpful to start with the We Are Still In movement, which you Mm -hmm. referred to, and is the basis for... America's de facto climate policy today. Catherine, do you want to give us an accounting of where the We Are Still In movement is? Yeah, so they have 2,300 organizations that represent 127 million Americans and $6.2 trillion of the economy. So they have it in different groupings. So cities and counties, there are 200 um, states and tribes. And I would say for cities and counties, they really are dispersed across the country. And in all those 2,300 organizations, all 50 states are represented in some way. The states and tribes really are located more on the coasts, the ones that have committed to this. So if you look, they have maps on the we're still in.org website so you can see where all these different commitments have been. Um, colleges and universities all across the country, middle of the country, coasts everywhere. And then businesses and investors also everywhere, 1,700 businesses. So there are a lot of people that have signed on. And I think um, another thing to look at is this global covenant of mayors, which is kind of, you know, you can, you can access it through the wearestillin.org where you know, there are 125 U.S. governors who've, who's, who've really not just registered their commitment, but who've decided to take inventory, like New York is, creating targets and mes- metrics, and then really establishing action plans. And that's what we need to see. It's great for people to sign on to a pledge, but it's another thing to really have them commit to something that is measurable and execute on it. This was a major topic of conversation in a previous podcast, we spoke with uh, one of your previous colleagues, Sam Brooks, Sam, yeah. 
who was in D.C. government, and he expressed a lot of frustrations about the lack of tracking of pledges. And New York, uh, you know, under your leadership and, and other leadership, has clearly stepped up and said, okay, we need better ways to track uh, our carbon emissions. We need policies to be able to tell people, to give them the financial incentives to make those retrofits and to say, this is the target, you got to do something about it. And that seems to be very different. Um, are there different conditions in place that make you feel like these pledges are more than just press releases? Because that's the big fear to me, that this we are still in campaign, sounds great. We can all say, look, local climate policy is stepping up. Trump administration be damned. But in reality, the, the mechanics are not in place to be able to track and execute on these pledges. Give us your thoughts on, on you know, how you see that playing out. I think it's a great question, and I think it's a, a challenge that is not, um, it's not the same challenge doesn't exist for every city or every government or every, or every um, organization that is still in. Uh, I think for New York City, we've set the stage for this you know, for quite some time. We have a greenhouse gas inventory that, that is... Um, Fairly robust and right. None of this happened overnight. <laughs> yeah, and so and we are we have a base a 2005 baseline, and we have been tracking as to what is really happening and how we're we're moving towards uh, our goal. That being said, you know, it, there is there are two things at play. There's the one thing at play uh, about galvanizing a movement. We're having this conversation because you know, 375 mayors signed on. We're having this conversation because Mayor de Blasio, the day after Trump pulled out of the Paris um, Agreement, uh, he signed an executive order um, committing New York City to the principles. Uh, these conversations in the context can be created in a way that uh, is galvanizing and is activating for uh, places that normally would not have done anything or not have made those commitments. And when those become Executive orders, they may become legislation. They start to bind uh, those places into action. So it's not, uh, it's not just kind of um, you know, mindless cheering. I think it is something in which uh, everyone is pushing themselves and backing themselves into a place where they have to respond. That being said, you have to have rigor to any analysis. And so you have to know where to start, and you have to know how your uh, you're actually going to be tracking your progress and pushing that information. I mean, last week when the, the mayor rolled out the plan for the mandate, one of the things he said in the press conference was that, you know, we should create a portal to make sure people know, you know, the, there's 14,500 buildings that we are targeting. People should know how they're doing. You know, where are, you know as they're going through the retrofits, maybe they're coming off the list. You know, that's the kind of thing where there's the ability to have this real-time interaction um, as we are progressing and helping building owners make these changes that I think is helpful. And I think that, that expands to cities when you're able to capture your data um, and you're able to um, have the same metrics across the board, that's where you start to get the, the economy of scale. You know, we, we, are, we work with several other cities. We're one of eight uh, pilot cities working with C40 now to develop strategies to align our goals to a 1.5 degree um, uh, contribution to, to global warming versus two degrees and as part of the, the Paris alignment. You know, that means that we have to have some kind of independent audit for what exactly we're doing. So there's structure that's being formed by the fact that we now are making this commitment as a, as a collective. I think, I think 
you start with a little bit of the cheering and you start with the, the galvanizing, but it's quickly forming into actual strategy. And for New York City, you know, we back up everything we do. And so we're, we are committed to not just um, putting out plans, but to actually showcasing that we can implement on those plans. Jaker, do you feel any differently about uh, the post-Trump environment given the, the efforts that Mark outlined? I mean, where you, you, do, you do have cities that are saying we're committed to tracking this stuff. Um, that seemed to be a, a big worry when we looked at the rise of local climate policy. Anything you want to say about that? Well, I mean, I certainly feel encouraged that there are people like Mark and others who are being empowered by their bosses to have this level of, you know, sort of responsibility and effort. I, you know, I still think that as having a long conversation with um, one of our good friends when we were at that conference in Vermont, and, um, you know, I've been working on solar for the better part of 22 years, and I feel like there's a lot of jujitsu that we went through to, like, get to where we are today, and we feel like we're actually on a pathway to ending coal. Right? We're not there yet, but we're on a pathway of ending coal. Like, they're not cost-effective. It's sort of a fool's errand to build a new one. Right? There's all this stuff, right? But, but like, the thing that frustrates me the most is that that's not true for food. Right? For all of the BS around Amazon buying Whole Foods and this guy doing organic and all this other stuff, we are not even close to actually reducing our carbon emissions from food. And that is one of the largest carbon emissions that we have. Like, you know, when people say, well, oh, what do you want me to be, a vegan? Kind of. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Like, I think that, like, you know, when you look at, like, you know, like um, Michael Pollan's work, right, it's very clear that we should be eating like our great-grandparents ate. And they did not, they were not able to afford meat, you know, more than once or twice a week. Right? So this notion that all of us came up eating meat like in an Egg McMuffin in the morning... And then, you know, like with a, with a, you know, Chipotle burrito at lunch and then, you know, then a steak dinner at night is crazy talk. So and Trump needs to stop pushing the meatloaf on Chris Christie. He, he needs to stop. <laughs> he needs to stop putting ketchup on his steak. That's right, ridiculous. Right. But like. Does he do that? He oh, does. Oh, but, you know. <laughs> but this, this stuff is real, right? Like land use emissions are big. And the number one, you know, reason why we're losing the Amazon is because of beef production. Right. And so, like, I look, I I am as hopeful as Mark is and I want to be hopeful about the we are still in movement. But I think that there's a level of seriousness that's lacking in the, all the changes we need to make. I mean, there was a great article in the L.A. Times today about um, cars and how anyone who ever does anything about cars in California loses their job. Right. If you say anything about, you know, ripping their, you know, like taking their car out of their cold, dead hands. Right? Like, you lose your job. You have a recall election and people lose their jobs. And, you know, like, that same thing is true in New York. I still have no, re no understanding of why we don't have congestion pricing in Manhattan. Like, it, is, it makes no sense that, like, today, there's, it was impossible to get from one place to the other place in New York City, even though it's got, like, the best subways and the best buses and all the other things, because, like, all these private citizens want to own cars that they never drive, and they just pay $400 a month to, like, park in parking lots, and we let them do it. We just tax them and that's fine. Like, I just think that there's a level of seriousness that I'm looking for that's not about, like, just, you know, saying, oh, we're putting solar on a bunch of buildings. Like, look how awesome we are. We're doing... And, you know, I love that Pat's number three in line on the community solar piece. 
but we're not like decarbonizing the grid here with that, right? Like I just, I think it's important for us to actually like be real about the fact that we have Paul Hawkins' book and we have this person's book and we know exactly what it takes to get there, right? And we're not doing it, right? And I, and I don't think it's the Trump administration's fault. I'm happy to blame him just because, you know, he sort of is weird and looks like an orangutan. But like, but like, it, it, but it's, it's, I think we all have to take responsibility for the fact that like we want to live this lifestyle and we don't want to actually figure out what it takes to decarbonize the planet. And, and it's, it's, it's tough, I know, but I think it's possible, but I think it's gonna take some serious conversation. Yeah, of course, that's what the uh, podcast is set up to do, I suppose. Uh, but, but, but look, that's a pretty heady set of issues to deal with right now. And each one of those sectors that you identify could be its own podcast. And we could probably be choosing more of those topics. But why we're choosing electricity, uh, efficiency in the built environment, that's because we're seeing incredible amounts of capital deployed. We are seeing business model wins, people figuring it out. And we're seeing an explosion of growth as a result. And so it's important for us to tell that story and to be saying, hey, look over here, we're actually making progress. And when you can't get otherwise intelligent people to even recognize that that exists, that's a problem. No, look, and I so agree. like, yeah, I mean, we can talk all day about the agricultural sector. All these things you identified are so extraordinarily important, but the huge wins that we are seeing right now are not even being recognized by supposedly many of the smartest people in the world. I mean, I'll, I'll jump in on that, too, because I think that we're also recognizing the fact that not everyone are the smartest people in the world, and not everyone have the time to, to focus on, on being uh, the smartest people in the world, and we have to uh, work on, on everyone's behalf. The, the ability to think about um, focusing on a lot of these problems also recognizes the fact that you have time to focus on those problems. I mean, I think that we, we, we don't really... Um, acknowledge the fact that there's tons of people that would love to be diving into the agricultural sector and what's the impact of beef, um, you know, kind of production, even simply in, on, in terms of water use, but they don't have the time. And, and the reality is that we, this goes back to the, the comments on, on kind of larger around social justice, is that um, part of the work we have to do has to remove obstacles for people to be able to contribute to this particular cause. So it's not just enough for like Jigger's right, it's not just enough for us to put solar on, on, wind, on rooftops, it's not just enough for us to kind of, you know, do stand-ups in, um, in front of efficient buildings. We have to, we were talking about um, pre-K for our, our, our kids earlier, you know, uh, the mayor is pushing for, for universal pre-K three. You know, that's 62,000 kids that get to go to pre-K at three years old, and that means that, you know, we're talking about over 100,000 parents that get time. And that time is something that you can contribute, uh, not just to kind of economic stability and to like kind of, you know, basically being able to have a second to yourself to think about things. Um, but it also means that if we are galvanized around this common vision that is being painted by a lot of local and really progressive uh, mayors and cities, then perhaps there's a way forward. You know, we're, we're, we're not just saying that this is the, the right thing to do, we're unlocking the potential of people to be able to participate in that. And I think that, that matters. It's okay. Okay. <laughs> the next um, 
I guess the the question that everyone's asking, and I I, I haven't seen any really good hard numbers. Um, when you count up all these pledges, is throughout the United States, and that we in, we are still in campaign. Like, is this enough to counteract um, what the Trump administration is doing in in walking away from say the clean power plan? I is, mean, like, are are we doing something that can completely counteract the? Trump administration policies. I mean, that was the beauty of the Clean Power Plan was that it was state-focused. So it was all negotiated by states. States can set their own targets and decide what they wanted to do to meet those targets. So I think that can go on. And so it's great that cities are doing things, but states are also moving forward. And and I think certainly as that's going to continue to go forward, what we have seeded is international leadership. That's what we've seeded by Trump stepping away. And so we're not being seen globally as the nation that's leading everybody forward, unfortunately, and it means other people will take that on, or we'll have to find communities of mayors and state governors to be able to take that on for us. But it did seed a pretty important role for us to back out. Yeah. Can we just talk about this weird news story over the weekend about international climate diplomats telling reporters that the Trump administration, uh, or at least officials at the State Department, are saying privately that the administration wants to stay in the negotiations and that no policy has changed. Sarah Huckabee Sanders came out and forcefully said, no, you know, we're, we're walking away from this deal. But very clearly, like, nothing is really changing. The United States is still going to be party to these agreements. And it's, it's a complete shell game. It's just the, the Trump administration wanting to convince the public... Game. Dorothy, <laughs> you've always had the power to go back to Kansas, okay? No, I mean, it's, we it's decided just, the terms of our negotiation, right? It's, it's not like he can do whatever he wants. Right. It's like he sound, sounds like somebody did it to him, like we got a bad deal out of this. It's like, well, we crafted the deal for ourselves. So, really, you can do whatever you want. Yeah, I mean, any thoughts on how this impacts U.S. So, standing or our national policy in any way, which I don't think it does. I think it's, all it is is a rhetorical game, and that's it. So there was a big money conference this morning um, on clean energy infrastructure, and Barry Worthington, who is the head of the U.S. Energy Administration, they're like an association. association, sorry, um, was on stage basically talking on behalf of the Trump administration. Um, and he basically said, we're going to meet all the emission standards under the Clean Power Plan. We're going to meet all the other standards. And it's really just because the technology is good enough. And we're rolling it out, right? Which is true. And, and it's sort of what I've been saying for a long time. Like, I, I, look, I, I, I loved the previous president. But I, but I do think that it's just, it's always been like the states. It's always been the the companies like the ones that I've run in the past that have actually led the charge. It's the business model innovation of all of our companies going into Brazil and El Salvador and other places and figuring out the finance and bringing in OPIC and XM and all the other stuff that, that's solving these problems. It's not the President of the United States. And they say all sorts of wonderful stuff. But remember, what in the first term, like Obama was pushing LNG like it was going out of style. Right? He was the one going around the world telling everybody to build $2 billion LNG facilities for import terminals. Right, Luckily, they were too broke to pay for them, and so we didn't get a lot of them. But, like, you know, I just think this notion that, you know, that Obama was the one pushing all this stuff around the world is crazy. It was always governors. It was always states. It was always, like, the companies of the United States of America that had all of this extraordinary knowledge and resource 
that were going around the world educating China and educating India and educating other people about how to do this. And they're still doing it because it's in their best interest to do it. And they're making the most money and the Europeans don't know how to do it. So it's like, it's still like our game. Um, and I think we're still winning it. It's just, it's, this whole thing to me is just a colossal distraction. Mm-hmm. Mark, you get the last question on this before we open up uh, for Q&A. Do you consider yourself, uh, the mayor, uh, other you know, important figures in New York City to be the new climate ambassadors? I think some would, some would think so. I personally think that uh, you know, all of you are. I mean, I, I think that we're moving out of the time when we uh, need to rely on central figures to be the, um, the hallmarks of, of, uh, of academia in terms of saying this is what needs to happen. You know, have, like I, I also you know, love Inconvenient Truth and I you know, used to play it, project it on the wall in my house. And, uh, I, but I think that we are in a place now where uh, that is not necessary in order to to galvanize change and to and to actually act, you know. So, you know, we're around the points of saying that the, there are lots of companies that are actually being equally as aggressive and making uh, strong commitments and also um, innovating around a lot of these solutions. Uh, those, um, the employees that work for them, their families, their neighbors, like all of you that that think about what you can do to turn your particular skill set towards this effort are the the true ambassadors because you also have the ability that has not happened in kind of previous generations to be able to amass you know your particular opinion together into a force you know um, I one of the kind of first things that happened uh, as I started to come uh, work for the city um, related to Trump is when he issued the travel ban and to see what it looks like to have uh, a city, both the city government as well as a population kind of galvanized in support and like what it was look like to look at the threads on my phone of people, you know, uh, carpooling to the to the airport to be able to um, to collect as many lawyers they could on the on the way there. I mean, I think that there is a part of where we exist right now that we don't. We don't need ambassadors. We need everyone to take this as a, a personal commitment that they then make a bottom line for their company, for their, um, their metrics of success, uh, because it requires all of you, and it requires that right now. So I'm, I'm less into kind of the, you know, the heroes, and I'm more into um, everybody knowing that um, they are essential because we, we're running out of time. And we, yeah. Can I second that? I, 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 um, I, I think the numbers are actually pretty surprising to people when you hear them. We only have 25,000 incorporated cities and towns in the entire United States of America. Right? That's it. And climate change is really about making sure that you're replacing bad infrastructure with good infrastructure. Right? And today, what all of you know is that building a brand new building that's net zero energy pays for itself over, you know, a very short period of time, right? I think what all of you know is that widening a road is the dumbest thing you could possibly do because it just increases traffic. Um, I mean, like, all of you guys should know that, and if you don't, you have to catch up on old Energy Gang podcast. Um, and, but what it requires is for you to attend the city council meetings, 
to attend your school board meetings, to attend those decision-making meetings. My own experience is that there are very few people in decision-making capacities that actually are fighting us on this. I think almost no one is fighting us on this. They honestly just don't know. And so they just cut and paste whatever document that they put out to RFP in 1970 and put it back out. And if someone shows up and says, you know, actually, there's a local firm that's doing this other stuff, you probably should widen the bid process to allow for these other non-standard bids to come in. Like, they'll, they'll do it. But no one asks. No one goes to the water board meetings. No one goes to the things. And so I know it's a big sacrifice to go to these things. But those are the decision makers who make the decisions around all of our carbon emission infrastructure. right? And, and it's really just about showing up and telling them that there are these solutions that they should open their you know, sort of aperture to allow them in. I mean, I agree it's up to all of us, but I also think people need to feel empowered, and they haven't. I think people have, this has been a nut that we haven't cracked about climate change. It's such a big thing. What can I do? And I think um, being able to have real actions and and know what you can do in a real engaged way is going to be really important because I think people have been a little bit lost. They think it's a problem. They also isn't, it's not at the top of their list because they don't really know what they can do about it. So I think that's a that's a really big issue for people is like being able to engage in a very on a very individual level and yet still feel like you're making an impact. Absolutely, I, I agree with that. For like the general public who just sort of hears a little bit about climate change here and there when they turn on the news channels and maybe they cover it for two to three minutes every year, but for the people sitting in this room and the people that we talk to every day. It is on the top of their mind, yeah. and they are doing real concrete stuff to try to solve market challenges to get us to that broader goal. And I am continually aspire, inspired every day talking to the people who are like working on those real-world challenges. Or at least once. So again. respect to all of you. Um, let's get to some Q&A. We're, we're, we're going through time here pretty quickly, but if there are a couple questions, we've got some mics over here. We'd love to hear from some folks. Don't be shy. Yeah, one on this side. Yes. We're all good? Yeah, we're all good. First of all, thank you. Uh, my name is Remus Galbanus. My company, Malka, is part of the Urban Future Lab. It's an open platform for uh, data-driven sustainability initiatives. So, Mark, you mentioned earlier one of the roles is to really ingrain the culture of sustainability across all the agencies. Uh, that's no easy task, obviously. Uh, but then you also said to ingrain the culture to every citizen, every building owner in the city. Now, I think the first step to that is all the policies that New York has actually created, uh, a lot of the regulations, a lot of the pledges. But what we've ended up is this smorgasbord of policies and rules and regulations. Uh, you mentioned quite early as well that with data, you basically translate that to no excuses. I'm wondering, what is the role of data? How can you actually organize data, translate that to action, to actually say that there is no excuses to meeting these goals in this environment of really variable uh, policies and regulations? So I think it's a great question. And I think that it, it really, really speaks to is the fact that the technology, especially around um, uh, building data and, and uh, uh, building information systems, is, uh, has evolved to the, to the point of which it's not as critical to have um, significant kind of building management systems as it has been in, in the past. And so to kind of to, to your, your, um, your point, if for data is important if it's easy to get, 
You know, uh, when you start to get into um, large capital projects that require significant in investment, uh, it becomes a, a time challenge. And I think that where we are right now, we have cut a lot of the, the ability to get the data out um, by using, you know, smaller technology. Um, really, I just need an AMI that sends, sends me um, real critical pieces of information and then having... Um, you know, someone with a laptop somewhere that can actually really um, you know, parse out what that means in the building because we need to be able to make simple decisions uh, quickly. And so as far as the big picture, I think that um, kind of from the work that you're describing that you guys do, uh, we need um, the private sector to be able to help us uh, promote and activate and test out uh, very quick quickly implementable solutions to get as much data as possible, but on the same side, recognize that we need someone that can, can analyze that data and give us um, some quick responses as to what we need to do. And, and I, so uh, there's a lot of pieces to that, but we're, we're excited to be able to bridge that gap and use the city's infrastructure and you know, 4,100 buildings as a test bed for that. Thank you. Over here. Hi, I'm Matthew. I'm a mechanical engineer at uh, Ecosystem Energy. I was really curious to hear more about how do we get uh, facilities operators, building owners, the government to kind of adopt common sense solutions. So the thing that kills me every day when I go on the subway is it is all still fluorescent lighting and there's not a single LED in the entire MP MTA. Who do you talk to for that? Likewise, when it comes to reducing carbon emissions in buildings, the only way to get it to zero is to electrify every single building, but I cannot name a single building that is really big that is completely electrified. How do we kickstart these conversations? How do we people, give people to cons uh, seriously consider electrification and uh, adopting common sense, low payback measures like LED lighting? I, I like both of these questions because they get to the core of the most difficult challenges <laughs> that you're dealing with. So uh, to, the, to the question about electrification, it's like there is we are in a transition time, right? We don't want instantaneously for every building to be electrified, right? It has to happen in uh, continuity with, with the grid being more and more renewable, right? More and more renewable grid, more and more uh, storage to be able to kind of use uh, the, the power when we need it, uh, and l letting us be in a place where uh, we're not you know, turning over the, 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 the grid you know, uh, in, in a few years. I, I think that having examples of how projects can be successful is helpful, but I'm just really interested in scale and being able to, uh, to have uh, solutions that people can wrap their brain around. That's, what, that's the benefit of what we're trying to accomplish with this mandate is saying that, look, there are a lot of different ways to cut your, your fossil fuel use intensity. It's not just about having a new boiler. It's not just about, um, you, know, um, you know, kind of changing out a, you know, a few of your ancillary systems. It's, it has a lot to do with you know, caulking your windows or putting new windows in or changing the insulation in your roof or, again, turning stuff off when you're not using it, setting a schedule. I think that the ability for us to incentivize more action in terms of actively monitoring and, and managing your buildings is a huge step forward in terms of getting to those buildings that can actually take in 100% renewable energy. Yeah, and the way facility managers work is like, your chiller goes bad and you get like the first thing you get your hands on. Mm -hmm. And if you instead have, well, the first thing I get my hands on or the best thing I get my hands on is cheaper, it's more efficient. I'm not going to get a permit to put it in 
because of what the cities, the rules the mm -hmm. cities are creating, then I'm going to think differently about it. But a lot of this stuff isn't, doesn't, these guys don't have time to think in advance in a lot of cases. Yeah. The, the person whose job it is to electrify everything is the electric utility. If they were actually capitalist organizations that had shareholders and want to make profits, they'd want to sell more of their crap. And it's just shocking to me how bad they are at their job. I mean, we basically sell less electricity today than we did in 2003. What is that? Like, I mean, like they're going out and saying to people, if you want to buy an electric car, we'll give you an extra $800 subsidy. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I mean, we got to go back to the 1930s when we actually used to have showrooms for refrigerators and lights and we convinced farmers and ranchers that they wanted to be electrified and like they actually have to do their job. They have to go to people and say, this electrified future is better for you. Here's why it's better for you. I'm going to send somebody with my logo there that you trust to tell you why it's better for you. Oh no, by the way, we're going to finance it because New York State has on-bill financing and on-bill financing super cheap, right? Like I just think that this is what I'm saying is you guys need to get more outraged. I just think that like when, when I do when I do like no money down financing, which we're doing for a lot of HVAC systems in LA right now, it's super hard. Nobody wants to listen to us. Nobody cares. They're like, oh, yeah, but I use crane and I use train and carrier and they sort of do this thing. And I'm like, well, but it saves you 60%. Oh, that sounds like a lot of work. And so we don't want to do it. And, and we're, we're getting paid like through this LCR contract to do it. And it's so hard. And I just like, that is the entirety of Richard Kaufman's plan. Right? His whole reason for being here is to get the utilities to get off their butt and actually want to make a profit. Right? And he's saying this shouldn't be on the regulated side, it should be on the unregulated side. But you can use all of the tools from your regulated side to sell on the unregulated side. And that's why he brought Audrey in and the utility said, well, we don't want to do any of that. Right? And that's why we're here. Like, and I just like the fact that we're not more outraged about all of this stuff, like gets to me, like, because they really are that bad. They are the enemy. <laughs> we got time for one more question right over here. Hi, my name's Charlie, and I work for Pure Power Engineering. We're a commercial solar design firm. Uh, my question is also for Mark, but if anyone else wants to weigh in, I'd love to hear your answers. Uh, so, Mark, there's no red tape. You have the keys to the city. What are three things you would do, and what are three things you would then ask of the citizens of New York City or elsewhere to help galvanize this movement? It's a good question. Yeah, thanks. That's six <laughs> so, things. Can you keep six them things. <laughs> All right, so, so three things I would do without any, any regulation or responsibilities, and then what's, and the other three are three things I would ask of everyone. Citizens, yeah. Okay, so uh, as, as far as, I'm looking at this from the perspective of how can we get the most done as quickly as possible, right? So, uh, the, the first target for me has, has, again, has a lot to do with buildings. Like, I have no regulation. I am increasing the, the amount of uh, performance required in buildings. Because I have no regulation, we're also, you know, uh, somehow convincing um, a lot of people with a lot of money to pay for that. So, um, so you know, banks get ready. Um, the, uh, the second thing I'm doing is I am... Uh, figuring out how to aggressively transition uh, everyone that has a car to either a bicycle or walking or mass transit or an electric vehicle. For most part, I want less cars in the road and I want 
all the ones that are on the road to be electric. So there's whatever can makes that happen as quickly as possible, um, and that is that might go to um, mass production um, in terms of uh, some of the new long range vehicles that are coming out. Uh, and then the third thing I, I'll I'll say is that uh, is starting to tackle something that is kind of really important. I think is our relationship to waste is something that is fraught with problems, uh, I, and I think that the ability for us to uh, quickly uh, turn the corner to not just single stream for recyclables, but for having um, actual organic, um, like uh, actual active participation in organic, this is going to be, that one's going to be on both sides of my list, uh, because we want all the resources to be able to, co to collect food waste, and we want everyone to participate. Like, we've got to stop throwing food away like it's something that we we gotta like fundamentally get it like move past that as the thing that we do um so so now it's three on this side and i got two left on the other side what do i want you to do i want you to uh, recognize the fact that the fact that you are part of this conversation is not just a uh, a kind of um a, a thought exercise. I want you to recognize the fact that you have an obligation to uh, bring more people into this message. Uh, we cannot keep being this esoteric group of folks that is just tree huggers and energy wonks that are kind of, you know, moving in circles. Like we have got to recognize that there are, you know, millions and millions of people that need us to be able to translate what we're doing into actionable items. And it's not just my responsibility to do that. It's yours, too. So take it seriously and start to uh, actively recognize that everyone you interact with in your day-to-day -day is an opportunity for you to start engaging on what you have already indicated is really uh, essential to our existence. And there's one more I have left? Or, um, yep. Uh, gosh. Uh, you're doing great. You're doing great. Pretty good. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, I'll, well, I mean, I'll stop now. So is that right? <laughs> yeah. That was impressive. I can't get past a two-part question, which is why I'm the guy asking questions usually. All right, so we've uh, we've kind of run into the end of our time, but I'm going to devote a few more minutes here because we got to go through some of the top news stories. There's a lot happening and I want to get the take from each of our members of the gang this is what we call the news circuit and uh, we've I had one at the top of my list here about the White House's conflicting reports on whether or not they're going to pull out of the Paris Climate Agreement I think we've agreed that it's not really that meaningful at this point I did want to um, transition into an interesting congressional development which is that a House committee passed a bill to get a certain number of autonomous vehicles on the road, and there's this bipartisan push to support autonomous vehicles, which, of course, in this environment seems pretty exciting and rare. Catherine, anything you want to say about the impact of that autonomous bill that is moving through the House and could potentially pass the full Congress, and any other congressional priorities we should be keeping our eyes on that have happened since that miraculous Democrat presidential Trump uh, uh, agreement on the budget. Oh, right. That one. Um, so the Self-Drive Act, H.R. 3388, passed on a voice vote 
on the floor of the House. So they're just waiting for the Senate to act now. But it's pretty great. It, um, it allows for more consumer protection. It kind of divvies up the role of state versus federal on autonomous vehicles. It updates safety standards, ensures more R&D. One thing that's interesting is that the Committee of Jurisdiction was Energy and Commerce, and they are doing a series of hearings now on power, called Powering America. And they're, I mean, I'm working with the majority staff on really innovative ideas to educate members. I wouldn't say these are necessarily hugely innovative legislative proposals yet, because that's not there. But they're looking at a number of things, the role of consumer in a transitioning grid, um, reliability, uh, what are the power, what should the power markets look like, you know, how do we transition, how do we allow everybody to participate. So it's pretty interesting that they're moving forward. There's a bit of a pent-up demand in actually doing something. There's been so much posturing, and I think that at this point, I'm really happy to see people talking about this stuff and thinking differently. And I think everybody knows whether or not you're talking about climate change, you're talking about innovation and U.S. competitiveness and jobs. And that, those are all very still very much in the conversation. Yeah, for sure. Uh, let's talk about this important milestone that we passed, uh, according to the Department of Energy. So we've been obviously tracking utility scale uh, pricing and installed cost per watt at GTM Research. And uh, it looked like many projects were dipping below a dollar per watt, which is the SunShot uh, initiative goal. They have a slightly different way of tracking their numbers, and they announced at Solar Power International last week that the uh, average industry cost had dipped below a dollar per watt, and you could see a dollar per watt solar in Kansas City, Missouri, for example, not just in Arizona or California. Um, Jigger, significance there? Well, I thought the headline was amazing. I, I think it's great that we've hit this goal. What's and I think the headline? Well, it was paired with a dollar watt, and it was paired with like six cents a kilowatt hour or something Yeah, was their goal, and we went below it, which I think is a testament to you know, the 200,000-plus people in the solar industry working together to get that done. Um, I thought that what was below the fold was the dumbest thing I've said in a long, seen in a long time, right? Which oh, was, God, is this a Green Tech Media article that you're going to count on? No, the, like, <laughs> the announcement from DOE then said that they're oh. going to, like, basically decide to pivot to concentrating solar power, which I was like, what the hell? Like, literally, like, you know, like, you buried the lead. And so, like, they have, like, $78 million or something for concentrating solar power. Which My we, hunch is that this has to do more with their technology readiness scale because now all of the, yeah. you know, their, their assessments have to do with early stage technologies right. and CSP is more fits in line with what they're attempting to do. Yeah, so I thought the announcement was great. I thought that the detail on the second page wasn't so great. Yeah. No, incredible milestone. And, and on top of that, um, we saw this incredible offshore wind development in oh, the United Kingdom. Cents, right? Yeah, multiple bids coming in well under the contracted price for the Hinkley C nuclear power plant, which would be, I think it's the biggest nuclear power plant, or the second biggest nuclear power plant yeah, in the I UK. A massive uh, government... Definitely the most expensive power plant in the UK. Yeah, right, right, right. So uh, now all of a sudden people are waking up and, and having a very serious conversation about... Um, whether it makes sense to move forward with the Hinkley C plant. Any thoughts from either of you on the significance of that pricing milestone on an offshore wind, which is consistent with what we've seen in other countries in the last six months? 
I think it's great, and I think it bodes well for the U.S. We have a tremendous resource, too, that is untapped, and I think yeah. that's great and for us. And New York, of course, is uh, yeah. attempting to tap that as well. well. Absolutely. I mean, so, we're, we're highly interested. I mean, I think to the extent that we can begin, really, the, the uh, offshore wind market here, we're aggressively trying to, to incentivize that. I mean, part of it is is having lessons learned like that that show that this is not just competitive but only gets better with age um, is something that we really want to see uh, more and more investment come uh, you know, to the Eastern Shore in particular. Yeah, no, I think the... Um I think Michael Liebrecht's really happy about the fact that that came in. He's been bad-mouthing that Hinkley plant for a long time. And um, on the offshore wind stuff, I think it's amazing. I think it's important for everyone to note that there are very specific reasons why that bid can be hit in Europe that can't. And those are? Um, all of the transmission infrastructure is being funded by the government, yep. so it's not part of the cost. That's a major um, European development that's very unique and, right. and is not what we do here in the U.S. Right, so that's a big deal. I think also just that they're, they're far ahead of us in terms of engineering and design mm-hmm. and like financing and all that stuff. So I do think the first plants in the U.S. will be more expensive. Um, a lot I, more expensive. A lot, <laughs> a lot more expensive. <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I also think that... Um, I mean, Governor Cuomo, to his credit, has been like bearing the lead on the offshore wind stuff too, because he's very afraid of the Cape Wind situation occurring here in New York. Um, and so, we'll see when it gets to be super high profile and how it's going. I think Statoil is doing an extraordinary job of trying to educate all the stakeholders and making sure they understand that you really can't see them and they're really far away and all this other stuff. But I mean, we haven't yet like faced the NIMBY problem of you know progressivism. Hmm. Um, there's a really uh, important, increasingly important procurement mechanism that we've heard a lot about over the last 40 years and have heard more about in the last five years, and that is PERPA. And that ensures that uh, utilities procure power from lowest cost resources. And all of a sudden, solar in particular, but also wind, is uh, cheaper than any other resources that utilities can procure and outside of any uh, mandate utilities are being forced to develop more wind and solar because of PERPA and now Congress is revisiting rules for PERPA states are also uh, working to change rules and contract lengths um, under PERPA and this seems to be one of the least known but most important Battles for solar and wind coming up here in the United States. Any thoughts on the what's going on in Congress, first of all, and the yeah, long-term I mean, implications? They they've tried to revisit this before, this 1978 law. When did they try to revisit it first? Well, in the last... Act, the 2008 in, yeah, 2000, right, in 2005. So they've tweaked it to add more you know, um, technologies to the qualifying facility list to try to tweak that language. They also tried in the last energy bill in the last Congress to make some big changes, and they took all that off the table because it was just too contentious. And they did the same thing with the Federal Power Act, too. It's really hard to adjust those. I mean, the issue is that it depends on which state and whether the utility is vertically integrated or not, but it's really, really helpful, for example, in the southeast in moving solar forward. A lot of those are PERPA contracts. And the utilities have taken a stance that this is so bad for us. The issue is, like, this is actually really great for consumers because it created competition. It allowed development beyond a monopoly. So it's really important that we continue to have that. I think um, that 
different industries are coming in. There was a big PERPA hearing, so different industries like SIA and others, the um, waste to energy industry, were all coming in saying, we really need this. You can't just pull the rug out from under us. And I don't think they will. They may try to do something in the House. I haven't seen anything on it, but I don't think it would get through the Senate. So I think we're, we're okay, although we may see some tweaks. It's, it, it's a big deal, and it's one of Tom Kuhn's biggest failures. Um, in the last like eight or nine years with you know the head of EEI who yeah. almost, in his sites, almost sure. never fails. Um, I mean, the big thing about this, for those of us who care deeply about this, and I talked a lot about this in the 2015 extension of the ITC and PTC, is that it, PURPA lets you put power on the grid. It just lets you do it, right? Mm-hmm. They have to give you a price and a contract length, but they let you do it. And if we can get it done, then that means that we are making the existing power plants less profitable because they're running less. I mean, the thing that everyone missed in the headline around coal beating out gas in the first nine months of the year is that coal plus gas was down four percentage points on, on, you know, on their um, you know, sort of market share. And all of that was from renewables. If we continue to gain three to four percent market share every year, all of those coal plants and all of those old natural gas plants will be bankrupt. It is not possible for them to make money running only 23% of the time. And so, like, it's, like, this is a fight that we have to win because this is exactly how you put all those generators out of business. Yeah. 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 Net metering was uh, the term of the day, and I think PURPA is becoming the new term of the day. There are, you know, very, very, very uh, serious issues that we need to grapple with, which is, like, recalculating avoided costs based on where natural gas prices are, based on grid needs, uh, length of contracts. I mean, certainly it's important to reevaluate a policy that's been in place for 40 years, but this is starting to be drawn down political lines. Last question. Um, We've touched on this a little bit, Mark, but I wanted to know whether you think the current hurricanes uh, and rebuilding efforts in Houston and in Southern Florida are sparking any sort of real conversation about climate preparedness and resiliency in, in the way that we saw in New York City. I mean, obviously, New York City and, and the surrounding states were very unique in their response. But what do you think about the response so far that we've seen post-hurricanes? So I mean, I make it a special effort to try not to uh, to evaluate um, how cities are responding in the immediate aftermath because it's just a lot that has to happen on, on the ground. But I think, in terms of being able to understand how we exist in a world of adaptation, I think it is important to know that we're talking big dollars. You know, New York City put twenty billion dollars into 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 post Sandy work, and is and that's ongoing. This is it's not a it's not a small investment, and uh, it, it is something that only gets more and more expensive and more and requires more and more investment from cities uh, because we are going to continue to see uh, significant uh, changes and significant impact, whether it's especially for coastal cities. Um, so there's a lot of work to be done to, to protect cities, but we also have to, I think, acknowledge the fact, and this is what I would hope to be uh, one of the bigger lessons learned um, in terms of managing um, you know, our, our resiliency um, stature is that uh, time and time again, we see the same narrative that 
the, uh, the most vulnerable populations throughout um, every one of our kind of urban centers and, and, and cities uh, are on the front lines to, uh, to having to deal with the impacts of the climate crisis. And it's not just floods and it's not just storms. It's also, uh, it's also heat and it's also um, other imp- imp- um, I guess metrics that we measure in terms of um, of health and wellness. Like we have, we will consistently be in a place where we have to we have to prepare socially prepare our cities as well as physically prepare them. So what I think uh, the one of the bigger lessons learned that should we should be taking is being able to see how are we supporting the social structures of our communities and and um, throughout you know all of our urban environments in a way that makes them more resistant and more resilient to uh, to these changes that are not just uh, storm related but are also um, uh, recovery related how do you get back on your feet after that how do you create a, a network that allows for you to uh, to be able to um, not just um, reset your kind of physical like life in your in your home, but like actually use this as a as a lever for us to uh, create advancement and an actual growth, whether it's from job creation or from um, from uh, kind of more um, connections being made to to connect uh, people and communities to resources. I think that's going to be the, one of the stronger metrics that we see as we're looking back on whether or not we were able to actually use this time in a way that created better and more thriving cities uh, instead of ones with, um, with just more walls and barriers. Mm-hmm. All right, we've reached the final leg of the show. We're going to tell you something we do not know. We pull out some anecdotes from our you know, daily lives, our jobs, stories that we're keeping our eyes on. And Catherine, we're going to go over to you for your story first. What do you got? Yeah, so that's, it sort of leads into what I was going to say. Um, last week, I spent the week in Mexico City. Um, it was after they had been shaken a little bit by their first earthquake, which really, really did damage in Oaxaca and Chapis. And uh, today they had another earthquake very close to the city. Uh, at least 20 buildings came down. They are more structurally sound because after the earthquake in the late 80s, they started changing their codes. And so the buildings, the newer buildings, are much stronger and haven't had much damage. But my heart goes out to those folks, and I wish them well. There are 21 million people in the Mexico City region, um, and they're, they, they don't even know all the damage that's been done. But one thing I was doing down there is it was a big, huge conference, a uh, renewable conference. Um, part of it was mission innovation, and I just wanted to kind of highlight that. This was very hopeful for me to see globally how much people are doing on clean energy and sustainability. So Mission Innovation has got 23 countries that have committed to doubling their research, and other many of them are doing more than double the research in sort of seven challenge areas, and those areas are um, are, in, are in various degrees of development and commercialization, but they really want to try to solve some gnarly issues. One, smart grid, off-grid, converting sunlight, HVAC, um, sustainable biofuels, advanced materials, and CCS. And it was uh, great to kind of be able to talk through what are other countries doing. I mean, there were U.S. reps there, um, so I think the U.S. is still part of that. But it's really hopeful to see globally the community all trying to kind of row in the same direction to resolve some of these issues that will tackle climate change. Jigger. 
So I found out recently. You always have like two or three stories. Do you have one today? Just one. Okay. <laughs> I, uh, I found out recently that Con Ed had the largest DC power grid in the city. It was powering all the elevators when they were all DC powered way back when. And they finally ripped it all out last year. Um, just in time for us to need it again for microgrids. Um, but I just thought it was amazing that we actually had this entire DC infrastructure in New York City to power all the elevators before they were converted to AC with inverters. And, um, you know, now we don't have it anymore. <laughs> Mark, what's your story? <laughs> it's good to know. Um, <laughs> so, um, uh, my mine is so I I wanted to kind of highlight that you know that I'm also like really appreciative to the city that and for kind of welcoming me as being like a transplant. Um, uh, I live in Washington Heights. I live um, um, uptown uh, in Manhattan, and um, near where I live is the um, is a place called Highbridge, um, and Highbridge is really a it's an aqueduct that was created you know about a hundred years ago. Uh, and it initially was, you know, again, as infrastructure was developing throughout the city, it would, you know, kind of bring water into large reservoirs that are kind of, uh, you know, right there, um, kind of around 170th Street or so. And, um, you know, over time, you know, as the city's infrastructure started to kind of grow and, and, and mature, as infrastructure d- does, uh, it became obsolete, became no longer necessary, went into a dilapidated state and, and kind of sat idle for, uh, for about 30 uh, years or so, uh, became kind of a, a, a place that had to be quarantined off to a certain extent. Um, but what the city did over um, about... Um, you know, kind of starting like a little bit under a decade ago, is uh, invest some money to kind of basically reopen High Bridge and reopen this as a pedestrian uh, bridge that kind of spans the uh, the uh, Harlem River. And, and what it does is that it creates this connection between uh, northern Manhattan and the Bronx that uh, you can only experience by foot, maybe by bike. Um, but it is something for me that has been a very... Uh, critical um, kind of metric and, and trigger of understanding what's possible and what transition in cities look like. Um, there's always going to be uh, a lot of technology that comes to in, in terms of letting us uh, bridge gaps and kind of you know financial models that help us you know better access um, uh, um, kind of new implementations in buildings and around our built environment. But creating connections that actually connect people and actually um, make you um, have a a, a, a time connection as well and understanding the fact that we can repurpose things in a way that makes it better for us. And, and physically seeing that and experiencing it is something that I think we have to be really conscious about, um, taking the opportunity to really think about and, and, and experience. And so if you haven't been up there, I'm highlighting it as a, as a destination um, uh, and, and take, take a trip up there, walk across, walk back, not, not that far, but it's something that is, uh, is worthwhile um, as we try to connect, create more connections, I think, between neighborhoods and also um, between where we have been and, and where we need to go. That's fantastic. Uh, I've got two. I'm pulling a jigger. Um, the first is just process. So you saw some of those flyers underneath your seats. Next week is our New York Rev Future Conference. We've touched on a lot of issues here, and we're bringing together our grid research team and pretty much every luminary possible who's working on New York regulatory and energy policy here. And if you're like a business trying to do business, trying to like understand this space, 
maybe you're part of a utility, still trying to get a handle on how to work with many of the vendors coming into the state, or you're from out of town and you want to know what's going on in New York, I really highly recommend going. Um, secondly, a big life change for me. I am going to be getting married on October 7th, and my fiance is here in the crowd somewhere. October, Sandy Price. And um, I'm very thrilled about that. She's been a huge supporter of me. And that also means that you're going to see a couple of weeks of quiet in October after we get married, and we're going to have a couple of weeks of no shows. So just be prepared for that, but know that I'm going to be very happy and we'll come back in full force. Uh, I want to thank Catherine Jigger and, of course, Mark Chambers. This was a really fantastic conversation. Thank you for coming. Always a pleasure to be here. And, uh, of course, a big thanks to the Urban Future Lab, Acre, Solar One, and NYSERDA for supporting the Clean Energy Connections event. We love it here, and we hope to come back here again. So you're out there. You're clearly listeners to the show. You're at networking events. Pass around the show. You know, maybe you're, like, swapping podcast recommendations like baseball cards. Pull up the Energy Gang. Say, oh, man, I got a show for you. You should listen to this. I know that there are plenty of energy geeks in your life that would want to listen to it. And uh, we've got another podcast called The Interchange that I do. It's more of an interview format with my co-host, Shale Khan. You can subscribe to that as well. We've got a lot of audio content there for you. And, of course, leave us, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else. Thanks again. Have a great night, everybody. We appreciate your time. With Jigger, Catherine, Mark, I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is The Energy Gang. Thank you.